words that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning are found in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 15 through 17. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And I'll read the whole this paragraph through verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we pray and we pray because we know that it's through prayer that we receive grace and insight. And Lord, we recognize that just in our flesh, through our own natural thinking, Lord, we cannot bring about all of the fruitfulness that this passage intends. Where we cannot even understand its grasps, understand its depths through our own intellect. Because we know that it's not merely understanding doctrine or philosophy that you desire, but you desire us to worship. And therefore, Father, we ask that you would give us grace. Not only that we would understand intellectually what is being said here, but we would understand from our heart that it would produce worship in all that we say, all that we do, with all our heart, with all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And Lord, we know in our flesh we can't do that. And so I pray that for your power and your mercy and your grace to assist us as we look at your word even now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if somebody were to ask you, about you, I should say, uh, to one of your friends, they meet one of your friends and they've never met you, but they've heard of you and they know your friend knows you. And they, they said, what is, uh, what is Justin like? And, that, and then they, and you're in their friend, your friend says, well, he looks nice, but he's really a jerk. Or they, they ask Gina about Gina and, and they say, well, she seems nice. But she's really stuck up. Or, they, or they, they, they ask about Chris. Well, he seems like a good leader, but he's actually really incompetent. Now, obviously, such statements, if you heard that, would be such gross misrepresentations, you would be rightfully hurt. You'd be offended. But... At the end of the day, a person's view of us pales in comparison to their view of Christ. It's of relatively little consequence. 
But how a person views Christ is of mammoth significance. Because dependent upon how they view Christ, it makes the difference between despair or confident hope. It makes the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, healing and punishment, joy and misery. There is no greater question that a person can ask than who is Jesus Christ? You might recall that Jesus Jesus pointedly asked the very same question to his disciples in Matthew 16. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Even today, there is great misunderstanding about who Christ is. Jews reject the idea that Jesus is God or even a person of the Trinity. Even Reform Judaism, which is the liberal progressive modern movement of Judaism, states this. For us in the Jewish community, anyone who claims that Jesus is their savior is no longer a Jew and is an apostate. Muslims also reject the idea that Jesus is God, although they do believe he was a great prophet and one of most God's most beloved prophets. But they reject him as God. The Baha'i faith considers Jesus to be God, but they just believe Jesus is one of many manifestations of God that has come upon the earth. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God as the Archangel Michael before the physical world existed and that he is a lesser, though mighty God. They also believe that when Jesus was born upon the earth, he was a mere human and not God in the flesh. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ was the firstborn spirit child of the heavenly father and a heavenly mother. And then Jesus then progressed to spirituality, to deity in the spirit world. And then later he was physically conceived in Mary's womb. Liberal theologians, and that consists of most of the mainstream denominations in America. Liberal theologians dominate the mainstream churches. They believe that Jesus was merely a great human teacher. They reject the virgin birth of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, and his bodily resurrection. Liberation theologians of liberation theology, they attempt to mix Marxism and what the Bible teaches about Christ. And so they view Jesus primarily as a revolutionary. He, he tried to overthrow the Roman rule in Palestine and to reestablish the kingdom of Israel like under Solomon and, and David. All of these are gross misunderstandings about what the Bible actually teaches about Christ. In fact, we'll see that very clearly in just what this passage in Colossians teaches us. This passage in Colossians presents us five definitive statements about who Jesus is. Now, these are truth statements. They're not opinions. They're not just viewpoints, assumptions, feelings. They are verifiable truths about who Jesus is. 
And you'll notice that these five statements, he is statements, or these five points in the outline are framed around the he is statements in this passage. And these statements, they they form kind of a, a creedal statement about who Christ is. Fundamental truths that all Christians should remember. And so for us, even memorizing these statements will uh, provide for us a, a, a guard, a mental framework. When we come uh, across heresies or misunderstandings of Christ, they will both protect us from such false teaching as well as allow us to help others who have been entangled by them. Because most cults and most heresies address two usually two great doctrinal claims, the authority of Scripture and the person and work of Christ. Usually both. And that's why Paul presents these he is statements. And he, and he does so in an emphasized, in a staccato-like fashion. So that the Colossians' confidence in who Christ is would be firmly grounded. Each statement is like a hammer to a nail, and he's He's nailing uh, in their understanding of Christ into their mental framework. He is God, the firstborn from the dead. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler. He is the savior of the world. Now, on a broader level, this creed about Christ can be broken down into two sections. Now, the first section emphasizes Jesus's Ah, it didn't come up. Bummer. Oh, well, that's fine. Um, I'll just point to you in your word. You can see this in the word. The first section emphasizes Jesus' rule over the first creation, and that's verses 1 through 17. That's what we'll look at today. And then the second section, which we'll look at next week, emphasizes his rule over the new creation. And I want to show you these parallels. In verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God. Then in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 15 also corresponds to verse 18. The firstborn of all creation, and then he's called the firstborn from the dead. Verse 18. Verse 16, all things were created by him in heaven and on earth. Verse 20, 19 and 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth. Verse 17, he is before all things. Verse 18, And he is the head, he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So it's it's emphasizing Jesus was Lord over the first creation, and Jesus is also going to be Lord over the new creation that he has established in his incarnation and death and resurrection. Now, due to the doctrinal density of this passage, we are only going to focus on that first section, his lordship over the first creation. And that has the first three he is statements in them. Then we'll reserve the final two he is statements for next week. Let's look first of all at the the first statement. Jesus is God. What it states specifically is that he is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image is one we're familiar with. It's the word icon. It just, like the English word, represents a physical a presentation of something. Now, for many reasons, people cannot see God. God is a spirit. 
and therefore he's unseen. Moreover, God is too immense for he circumscribes all of creation, all of the universe. He is bigger than the universe. So no eye could even behold him for he's everywhere. Just like we can't see the universe because it's too massive. There's no way that we could see God, even if he was visible. He is also too holy and too glorious for our eyes to behold. Exodus 33:20 says, no one can look upon God and live. First Timothy 6:16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light, whom no human has ever seen or is able to see. Now, because God cannot be physically seen, he created man to be his image bearer. Right? Adam was formed in the garden, Genesis 1, 26, to be a physical representation of God. And he was God's image bearer. He still is, I guess, man, man still is. But that image was corrupted. It was, it was deformed on account of sin. So men still bear the image of God, but that image is distorted and it doesn't accurately represent who God is. But when Jesus came in the flesh, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He presented to mankind a perfect representation of God, a perfect image of God, because he always obeyed God. He had the perfect character of God. He manifested his truthfulness, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, even towards enemies. He also manifested his power in all the multitude of miracles that he performed, healing the sick, casting out demons, walking upon water, silencing the wind and the waves with the word, even raising the dead. He showed that he had the power of God. So Jesus was an even superior image bearer than Adam because he was fully God in the flesh. That's Paul's point. And this is also why Jesus could confidently tell his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because he was the best representation, image bearer of God. By taking on flesh and living as a full human, he was the perfect image of God. But interestingly, if you look at verse 18, or 15, sorry, it appears that the emphasis here is not so much that Jesus in his incarnation was the perfect image bearer, but actually before his incarnation, his pre-incarnate status. Because the explanation of this statement that follows focuses upon Christ creating all things and upholding all things. So therefore, even Adam's image bearing was framed after the image of Christ prior to creation. Adam bore Christ's image. And likewise, when God manifests himself in the Old Testament in his theophanies or Christophanies, Right When he appeared to Hagar, he appeared to Abraham, he appeared to Moses and then Joshua and then Gideon. When, when God would appear before men, it was God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity who appeared before them. 
And the significance of this is beyond words. Because it demonstrates that, again, when Jesus came into the earth, He did not come merely as a man. He was not merely a good teacher or a great prophet or an angel even. He wasn't even a second God. He was Yahweh, the one true God. And therefore, He is worthy of all worship. Secondly, Jesus is not only God, He was... Creator, is creator, the firstborn of all creation, it says. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So he's he's called, notice, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this, this term has confused many people throughout history. Because it seems to imply that Jesus was a creation of God, right? Because he was born. Now, of course, we know that Jesus was born, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary. We celebrate this every Christmas. But this term appears to suggest that he was born even before that, right? He was the firstborn of all creation. And on this basis, Mormons suggest that Jesus was the firstborn spirit child of a heavenly father and heavenly mother. And also why Jehovah's Witnesses assumed he was created by God prior to the first day of creation. And these errors all stem from a misunderstanding of the meaning of this word, firstborn. The Greek word is protokos. And it doesn't refer to being first in order, but primarily first in preeminence. For instance... King David is called the firstborn in Psalm 89:27. This is what it says, and I will make him referring to David the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now David, as you know, was not even the oldest of his siblings. He was the youngest. But God calls him the firstborn. Also Jeremiah 31:9 refers to um, Ephraim as God's firstborn, but Ephraim was actually Joseph's second child. But he's called the firstborn. The nation of Israel is also called God's firstborn in Exodus 4.22 and I, uh, Isaiah 64.8. But as we know, Israel wasn't the first of the nations. Israel didn't even come into existence, technically didn't come into existence until uh, Moses created the nation at, at Mount Sinai. But even if you go back to Abraham, and the seed of Abraham being Israel. Even so, that's way later amongst all the other nations of the earth. So firstborn doesn't emphasize the first, but the, sorry, it emphasizes um, the status not the, and the distinction rather than the birth order. Right? The emphasis on the being first, not born. Furthermore, we know this is not suggesting that Jesus was created because the text goes on to say he created all things. Now, obviously, all things excludes himself because a person cannot create himself. But Jesus, it says, created all things everywhere. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and 
for him. So before anything existed in all of creation, Jesus was. As the Apostle John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus spoke, and everything came into existence. God has granted men creative power to build and improve things and to make things beautiful. But only Jesus created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. He spoke and it all came into being. He is the ultimate creator. But what is emphasized in this verse is not just Christ's creative power, but his preeminence and his authority. Because what Paul delineates as all things is all things that are visible and invisible authorities. And then he goes on to delineate spiritual or angelic authorities, earthly or political authorities. Now, notice those terms there. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Those words in the the Jewish writings referred to orders of angels or orders of demons. And in the Bible, they almost always refer to demonic powers. I think they all, in every instance, it refers to demonic powers. I'll show you some of those verses. Colossians 2.15. It says that through his death and resurrection, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Ephesians 6. Paul writes that Christians against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Clearly, that's not referring to good angels and clearly it's not referring to just to earthly authorities. Peter also tells us that angels, authorities and powers have been subjected to him. And there's other references, too, which are there at the bottom, Romans 8:38, Ephesians 1, and so forth that point out that these are referring to demonic beings, demons. But what's really profound about this statement is that it says not only are all these things created through him, but for him. And just consider the significance of that. This emphasizes his deity again. Everything in creation finds its purpose in Jesus Christ. That includes every unbeliever on the face of this earth. It includes every mountain, every blade of grass, and it includes Satan and all of his demons. All right, they all serve at Christ's pleasure. As we see in the book of Job, Satan himself can't even do a thing without Christ's leave, without his permission. So, yes, Satan, demons, they have a lot of power, but they are bound by Christ's authority. 
And eventually every living thing on the face of this earth will bow their knee in homage to Christ and declare that he alone is worthy of worship and honor and glory and praise. This is what is depicted in the book of Revelation chapter four. You know the passage well. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So if all things were created through Christ and for Christ, that includes every single one of us. And that includes you, whether you are a follower of Christ right now. Or if you're in rebellion against him. You were created for Christ. To glorify him and to serve him because you are a created being. You didn't create yourself. He created you and he created you for a purpose. And that purpose was to glorify him. Moreover, you're dependent upon him for everything you have, not only for life and breath, but you're dependent upon him for everything that you possess. He has given to you in his sovereignty. And that's why you not only owe Christ your allegiance, but you owe him your absolute worship. Again, even the demons who are in constant rebellion against Christ acknowledge his absolute authority over them. Right? You, you remember the passage where Jesus meets the Gerasene demoniac who's possessed by a, a group of demons. They describe themselves as legion. And even they beg Christ not to cast them into the abyss. Because they know his absolute power over them. They can't resist him. They can do nothing unless he gives them leave. So even if you don't acknowledge Jesus as Lord over your life, he nonetheless is. And one day you will have to give an account to him whether you acknowledge him as your Lord and God or not. As it says in Romans 14.10, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And this is referring in the context to Jesus Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So he is our creator and he is also our Lord and God. Thirdly, this passage points to the fact that he is the sustainer of all things. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The the point of verse 17 is to demonstrate that not only was Jesus uh, um, pre-existent to everything else in creation, because he always was, he had no beginning, but he also sustains everything that was created. Everything that he created, he not only set into motion, but he continues to control all of their motion. Every atomic movement, every particle, every force upon the earth, he directs. It says he holds all things together. 
Again, think this, this is this refers to all the various forces in nature, gravity. Uh, the electromagnetic force. What physicists call the strong and weak force that bind atoms together and all their minuscule parts. Jesus himself keeps everything from spinning out of control and bursting. This also speaks to the Goldilocks principle that allows for life to exist upon our planet. Consider that if the Earth's orbit was just a little bit closer to the sun, disastrous atmospheric changes would occur, including the sea level rise, so much so that uh, there would be increases in extreme weather and the species, various species would become extinct. There would be agricultural disruption. If the Earth bent less than an inch from its orbital path around the sun, our orbit would be vastly larger and eventually we would all freeze to death. It was just a little, an inch closer every 20 miles or so. We'd all eventually become frozen. Or sorry, actually not frozen, just the other way around. We would become incinerated by the sun. You'll note also that 75% of the entire area of the earth is covered by water. If there was just a little bit less water upon the earth, the earth would suffer from drastic temperature changes. And we would look most of like what the deserts, the Sahara Desert looks like. We would be super cold during the night and extremely hot during the day. And any different liquid other than water or less water would make the earth inhospitable for life. If the earth was spinning faster, all the land around the equator would be flooded. And then while the sea level from the poles would lower. We'd all be forced to live closer to the poles and it would also just result in catastrophic extinctions of various creatures. So Jesus created the world specifically to sustain life and he upholds it so that life can be sustained. And consider that we have not been able to find life on any other planet. And people say, well, there's some maybe some organisms here or there, but nothing like Earth. But we've been searching. Jesus also sustains the life cycle in the seasons of the year. He created and sustained the reproductive cycle of not only humans, but animals and plants so that we might have food. Jesus is therefore in control of all the changes in our climate. And we don't even have to worry about climate change, not that we shouldn't be responsible stewards, but he's in control of it. He sustains the climate. He also sustains the equilibrium in the human body. He keeps our hearts pumping and our lungs breathing and all those other things. We don't even know what's going on. He keeps that going in us. He directs the brain to perform all its intricate functions. And not only in us, but in every creature, every bee, every fly, every amoeba. Moreover, consider that most of what makes up the human body is actually just empty space and a lot of atoms. And Jesus keeps those moving in exact proportion to how they need to move. 
He established the boundaries of the periodic table, created all the necessary elements we need for life and existence. Along with the various combinations of molecules. And and also consider the chaos and the incalculability of studying things at a quantum level. That is, the, the physicists say it just seems like complete chaos at a quantum level. But at the same time, we can study stars and planets and galaxies and their movements with absolute precision. How does that work? Even on a spiritual level. Jesus works the free will of man, of every man, in precise accordance to his sovereign will. So much so that none of his purposes are thwarted, and yet every man is still accountable to all of his decisions. In other words, Jesus is absolutely sovereign over everything. He is God. He is the creator, and he is the sustainer. Which, of course, begs this question, do you believe that? Do you believe these things about Jesus Christ? And if you don't, why not? Would you be willing to bet, risk all of your eternity upon it? Would you be willing to risk eternal, never-ending joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, or eternal torment and despair? Are you so certain that He's not these things? And if you do recognize Jesus as Lord, why don't you obey Him? Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, asked his disciples who claimed to follow him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Jesus's point here to his disciples is that even if you acknowledge his lordship over your life, even if you know he's God, if you also do not do what he says, it shows that you actually don't believe it. If you acknowledge his lordship with his mouth, your mouth, and then disregard his authority by ignoring his commands, it mocks him. Right? It's bad enough to accidentally offend a person in authority because you didn't know who you were talking to. But if you deliberately know who that is, you know who it is, and you deliberately deliberately disregard their authority or their commands, it shows you are extremely arrogant and defiant. In Shakespeare's Henry V, uh, the battle before, sorry, the, the, the evening before that, the famous battle of Agincourt, King Henry 
put on the clothes of a commoner and he went amongst his troops to inspect them. And not knowing who he was, one soldier insults him with a profane gesture. Another calls King Henry a coward and even um, is about to fight him to the death. And of course, if these men knew who they were talking to, immediately their life would be forfeit. Now, there could be some pardon because they didn't know who they were talking to. If they would have known it was Henry, they would have immediately gone prostrate before him and they would have obeyed any of his commands that were offered. And likewise, if we recognize who Jesus really is, we must seek to obey all of what he has said. And we know what he has said because he's given it to us in his word. Every word matters because Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He is Lord. He is God. He is our creator. He is the sustainer of the world. And we need to submit wholly to his instruction. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for giving us this clear instruction about who your son is. And Lord, I pray that you would drive these convictions deep into our heart so that we would not be shaken by false teaching, by twisted understandings of the scriptures. And that we would be able to help others who are led astray because of false teachers who want to manipulate your word and to keep others from knowing the full salvation that is available to them in Christ. Lord, help us to be good ambassadors and faithful servants. We ask these things in Christ's name.